Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what a beautiful day. And it's a good day to be in the Lord's house to worship. And uh, what a beautiful sunny day out there. Wanted to uh, welcome everyone to church this morning. And uh, thank you if we see a few visitors here this morning. And it's good to have you folks with us this morning. And uh, we will be having our uh, communion this Sunday, uh, today, and we will then be having our potluck lunch after church today, and so uh, you are all invited, whether you're able to bring something or not, there's always plenty out there. We joke sometimes it may all be apple pie or, or uh, macaroni and cheese, but it's all good, and uh, love to have you stay if you're able. And uh, on a personal note, uh, I just wanted to say uh, thank you. Uh, we've been having some troubles with our, our boiler this year and uh, as well as our well, our pump. And I just wanted to say this morning thank you for those that were able to help out in the freezing cold, in the dark, and everything else. Just wanted to say thank you for that help, and, and we very, very much appreciate it. And I can appreciate... Uh, yeah, when we get a little older, we can't always do the things that uh, we've always done. So thank you. I just want to say thank you so much for that help. Any other announcements this morning that need to be made? Yes, Jane. All right. Return by February 25th. And... Uh, if you have any questions about that, you can just ask Jane. Anything else this morning? Any other announcements? Yes. Maybe one more pair of hands if someone else has their hand in the monitor and brought that one out of church. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that. <laughs> Anyways. Thank you, thank you. God is good, and it's a, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this church. Let's open this morning with a word of prayer. Now, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be part of this church. We thank you for the many people in this church that are so helpful. We just thank you for the opportunity to be able to serve here. And we thank you for this beautiful day, for your creation. We thank you for each one that is able to be here. And we think of those that may not be able to be here, those that may not have been here for a while. We pray that your, your Holy Spirit would be working in their hearts and that they would be back in church. And as it says in your word, to not forget the assembling of the brethren. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our salvation. We pray it would help us each and every day to be living for you and to, to remember the things that we have learned from your word and that we would put them into practice and that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We pray that you would just watch over us and strengthen us. We pray that you would each and every day that you would help us to live for you. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> if you would stand with me, our call to worship is on the back of the bulletin, and then we will sta remain standing and sing number 43 in your blue book. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Amen. And if you turn with me to number 43, and let's sing, let's sing all four verses. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Amen.
Let us pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for our homes and our families. We thank you for our jobs, and we thank you for this offering. We thank you most of all for our salvation. We pray that you would use this offering for your honor and glory, and that it may be used that many people would come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Revelation chapter 21. If you'd like to follow along with me. Revelation chapter 21 starting in verse 9. Then came one of seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb." And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the three east gates, on the on the north on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west three gates <coughs> and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls the city lies four square its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass, the fountains of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. <clears throat> and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anybody who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. And now if you would stand with me, we will sing number 201 in your green book. Number 201, he will hold me fast. Amen. Oh, I'm sorry, no wrong one. Christ our hope in life and death. There we are. 201.
turn with me to number 215, He Will Hold Me Fast. <coughs> assurance to know that if we belong to him, he will hold us fast. We're going to take some time now to go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come to you, our rock and our redeemer. You are our strong place when everything else is falling apart. We know, Lord, that Though the world changes, though our lives change, though we change, you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. You never change. And that's 
a joy and an assurance, Lord, because we know that you are strong and you are kind, and that doesn't change. And so we run to you, Lord. We run to you who, who has the power to save and who also has the willingness to save all who come to you. We thank you, Lord, that you watch over us as a shepherd, that as a shepherd seeks out his flock, so you, Lord Jesus, are seeking out your sheep. We thank you for, for calling us back to yourself, Lord, when we wander, for finding us in all the places that we've scattered ourselves. We thank you that you continue that work, Lord Jesus, that even now you are bringing out from the peoples and gathering from all the countries your sheep into your fold, your people. We ask even this morning, Lord, that if we are lost, that you would seek us. That if you have strayed, that if we have strayed, that you would bring us back. That if we are injured, that you, were bi- that you would bind us up. If we are weak, that you would strengthen us. As we come to you this morning, Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners. That we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep that we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, that we have offended against your holy laws, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, that we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And we confess, Father, that apart from your grace, there is no health in us. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Spare all those who confess their faults, Restore all those who are repentant. According to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we ask, Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins unto God. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. From Isaiah 53. Surely Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a joy, Father, to know that, that though we are sinners, though we are broken in so many ways, that in Jesus Christ you have laid our sins on him. Christ, what a wonder that you bore our sin, that you carried our shame, that you you carried our iniquities and that you died in our place. And what a joy to know that we're free of that. That if we come to you, Father, in the name of Jesus and ask and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, that you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all of that and to free us in Jesus' name. We can walk lighter now, Lord, 
We are free from guilt and shame in Jesus. We're so grateful. And we're grateful, too, that you don't just forgive us, that now you're in the business of changing us. That having reconciled us to yourself, having brought us back into a relationship with you, you've given us your Holy Spirit, filled us with your Holy Spirit to change us and remake us. And we're grateful for that, Lord. We know we need to change, and we know we don't, we don't have it in us. And so we're thankful, Lord, for the promise of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, have your way among us. Change us, remake us into the image of Jesus Christ. Finally, Father, we ask your blessing over those in our lives um, uh, who we long that they would know you. The prayer here on the prayer slip is for um, our lost and backslidden loved ones. Lord, uh, our, our heart's greatest joy is to know you and to worship you. And our hearts break to see people um, who don't know your love, who are running away from you even as you are seeking them. And so we ask, Lord, for your blessing over those we have on the tips of our tongues and on the tops of our minds, Lord, our friends and our neighbors uh, that, are, that are far from you, that you would reveal your love to them. Lord, that perhaps even through our conversation and words or, um, or by some other means, Father, that, that you would be drawing them to yourself. Uh, and we, we ask, Lord, that even in the next year or so, that we would see, uh, that we would be able to have the joy of gathering with people who are not yet in this room, um, who, who might be brought to know you, Lord Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's pray together as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <clears throat> Our final song before the message is number... Uh, right, number 209. <laughs> Number 209, let's stand and say.
you. You may be seated. As we go to the Word this morning, uh, you can open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, and we are so close to being done. We're in Genesis 49, uh, right at the end of the book. I said when we began Genesis that Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's a book of beginnings, of course, the creation of the world, and then the fall of the world into sin and human rebellion. But then also the beginning of God's plan to rescue and to redeem the world. And that, that starts to jump off the page on the first few pages of Scripture. As early as Genesis 3, God is making promises one day to send a Savior to save us from sin and death. And that promise just gets fleshed out more and more as Genesis goes on and, and as Scripture goes on. And so the other great beginning in Genesis is the, is the foundation, the beginning of the people of God. And this is in and through the family of Abraham. And we've, we've just talked about Abraham again and again in Genesis, right? Because God makes these great promises to Abraham and to his children that God is going to bless Abraham. And through him and his family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So God's plan for saving the world from sin and death, it's all in Abraham's family. Right, so we followed Abraham's family, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now here in Genesis 49, Jacob is passing on this promise of blessing to his boys, his 12 sons. Okay? And that's what we find in Genesis 49 is Jacob blessing his sons, and it's more than just a blessing, and we'll see that. He's speaking prophetically. He's not just saying, God bless you. He's, he's actually indicating some ways in which God will bless them in the future. And so what we're going to do is go down through the list. We're going to look at each of these 12 boys. By, by now, they're grown men, right? We're going to look at each of these 12 boys and what Jacob promises about how God is going to bless them. And some of that's in the near-term future. Some of that's about their settlement in the promised land. But some of it, as we'll see, actually stretches all the way forward into the new creation. Especially when we get to Judah. That a part of what Jacob sees is going to happen in and through these boys as they turn into tribes, as they turn into a nation, is that eventually there's going to be a Messiah, a Savior, that rises from the tribe of Judah who will redeem the whole world and who will eventually earn the obedience of the nations. We're going to see that Genesis 49 is actually pointing us to Jesus. This is quite the passage, and we've got a lot to work through, and so I'm not going to read the whole passage here at the beginning, because I want to be efficient with our time. I'm going to begin in prayer, and then we'll work through the passage as we go. So let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Lord, we repeat the prayer we have just sung in saying, Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord. Our desire this morning is not to encounter human words or human thoughts or human ideas. We can find those anywhere. Our desire, Lord, is to hear from you. That as we come to your word, you would speak to us. And we ask that not just, not just that we would understand the words you have written, but that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be with us this morning and that you would cause our hearts to come awake and alive 
in the promises that you have given us, especially in the great gift of Jesus Christ. And these things we pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12 boys. We're going we're gonna to move some of, through some of these uh, boys quite quickly, and some of them will take more time on. Three general categories of, uh, of blessing and of prophecy that we're going to see. The first category is the first three. It's Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And this is the blessing on the troublemakers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, who, as we're going to see, they're, they're kind of, they made trouble um, during their lives. And so the, they've got kind of a mixed blessing as Jacob, Jacob blesses them. The next group is, is, our, is our grab bag of a number of tribes who are receiving a general kind of blessing in the promised land. God is going to prosper them where he plants them. But the final blessings we're going to see are specifically, um, we might say, kingly or messianic blessings. That there's some of these blessings on some tribes, certain tribes, where leaders, judges, kings will rise from these tribes. And ultimately, the Messiah king from the tribe of Judah. So that's the this third category is kingly. So um, we'll begin with the troublemakers. So let's start at the beginning. Reuben. Uh, let's begin in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. That'd be quite an interesting thing, right? If, if on your parents' deathbed they said, let me, what's, let me tell you what's going to happen, not just in your life, but in the lives of your descendants, stretching hundreds of years into the future. But that's just what Jacob says. In a spirit of prophecy, he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Reuben's the firstborn. He's supposed to be the, the first of these children to mature to full strength. He's supposed to be the kind of the chief representative of his father. He's supposed to inherit the lion's share of the blessing and of the inheritance. But Jacob does not give him this blessing. Unstable is water, verse 4, unstable is water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. It's referring here to an event which we read about in Genesis 35 and verse 22, when Reuben, in defiance of his aging father, uh, laid with one of his father's wives, Billa. And there's multiple levels in which this is a, a tragedy and this brings shame upon Reuben's name. Um, there's multiple ways in which this is instructive and offers a warning to us. First of all, in the most basic sense that <laughs> um, men ought to be, men and women, ought to be warned of the consequences of sexual unfaithfulness. But I think there's a deeper thing going on because in, in committing this deed, what Reuben was doing was pushing against his father's authority. As the firstborn son, he sees his dad aging and he's trying to push his weight around a little bit, saying, I, I think I'm going to be the one who's in charge around here. He's, um, he's ambitious, sinfully ambitious. He's prideful in a blatant and gross way, right? He, he refuses to honor his father and mother. 
And so what happens, right? What does God do with the proud? He humbles them. Right? Reuben, who's firstborn and who wants more rights than he has, is humbled. He doesn't even get his firstborn rights. Simeon and Levi, similarly, are troublemakers. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here, Jacob is referring to events which are uh, recorded for us in Genesis 34, where Simeon and Levi's sister was attacked. And in reply, what did they do? Well, they attacked and killed the guy who did it and all of his family and everyone in his village. Jacob describes it as cruel wrath, as fierce anger. And so, in a sense, well, their anger is cursed. They're not cursed. We're told at the end of the chapter that actually what Jacob spoke to every one of his sons was a blessing, but their anger was cursed. And so the result is that they're scattered in Israel, that they neither, um, uh, neither Simeon nor Levi inherits a unified plot of land when they come to the promised land. The other tribes, they get a nice section, right? They get a state in the nation. Simeon and Levi don't. Simeon is scattered amongst the tribe of Judah, and Levi is scattered amongst all of the other tribes. So th they get to be settled in the land. They, they're blessed in the land, um, but only as scattered tribes. We should be careful to note here, it's not, it's not just that these men um, had martial strength that, that they're cursed. It's not just that they were strong or powerful. Some of the tribes are going to be blessed with great military strength, and that's going to be a blessing. The curse that Simeon and Levi bring upon themselves is their cruelty, is that they use their, their might tyrannically. And, and so it's for this that they're cursed, uh, that their anger is cursed. But here, too, there is a note of grace. Just because Simeon and Levi were wayward doesn't mean that their tribes aren't blessed. Simeon is blessed in that the tribe of Simeon is settled amongst Judah and is able to taste the fruit of the glory of the tribe of Judah, which is quite blessed when they settle in the land. And so to Levi, in the time of Exodus, uh, what, what was the tribe of Levi known for? Well, the tribe of Levi is where Moses and Aaron came from. The tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. And in all the waywardness of the people of God in the time of the Exodus, the, Lev the tribe of Levi um, again and again proves their faithfulness. And they're blessed when they settle in the land. Again, they're scattered, but they're blessed with a tithe, with a tenth of the produce of the land in their priestly duties as priests and Levites. That's the troublemakers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And now we come to kind of the main, um, the main body of blessing right, after these first three. Um, I want to touch on a few of the, sh the short ones in kind of a rapid-fire way. Notice some of these are very long, and this is intentional. Judah and Joseph get big, long blessings. 
it's because, in a sense, they're more important. Right? And so the, the shorter ones have less emphasis. So we'll touch on some of those. Verse 13, Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Zebulun is settled in the north and in the west near the coast in terms of the, uh, the geography of the promised land um, up by the ships up near Sidon. And that, that's fulfilled when they settle in the land. Verse 19, Gad, raiders were told, shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad, when he's eventually settled in the promised land, is settled on the border. He's actually on the far side of the river. And this tribe um, was often in the crossfire whenever people were coming in to raid the promised land. They had to go through Gad. So he was kind of the, the frontier raider police there. So that's what's going on there. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher geographically is positioned um, up near Zebulun. The, in the north of Israel is a f in some ways a more fertile country and also right near all the ports of trade where all the royal delicacies would have come through on their way down to the kings in Jerusalem. So that's what's going on with Asher. And then Naphtali, Naphtali verse 21 is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. There's some questions among the scholars about exactly how to read the Hebrew here. Um, but one reading is, is that Naphtali is given this blessing of fruitfulness, right? Just imagine this kind of this, this deer, right, prancing about and having lots of does, right? That's, that's the image, is of joyful fruitfulness. Verse 14, Issachar, we're told, is a donkey. Probably not a compliment uh, as far as how we would use the word, but it's not necessarily negative in this setting. This is not an insult or a curse. Um, a donkey in... This day and time and place is a really good pickup truck, right? a really effective uh, tool. Issachar is a strong donkey. He's a hard worker. Crouching between the sheep holds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulders to bear. He's settled in a good place and he works hard. That's a blessing. That's a blessing, although there is a shade of warning right, and of danger here. We're told that he became a servant at forced labor. Is probably referring to the, the time when the tribes of the northern kingdom are subjected to forced labor, right at the, right at the twilight um, of the kingdom. All right, now we're going to move into the royal ones. We'll spend more of our time here. Um, royal or messianic. So we've we've been talking about animals, right? We've got a Naphtaliza doe. Issachar is a donkey. Dan is a snake. Dan is a snake. Again, that strikes us probably not as a compliment. But I don't think we should take this, this imagery as entirely negative. Okay? Now, um, biblical imagery is sometimes complex. Right? Now, the first snake picture we think of in Scripture is Genesis 3, and that's not a negative. That's not a positive picture, right? The serpent, the tempter, the deceiver, right? Um, but think about the New Testament. Think about what Jesus says about his people, right? He says you need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so there's a, there's a wisdom or a craftiness in the, in the serpentine image that's not entirely negative. And so what are we talking about that Dan is a serpent in the way? I think the clue that we get here is in verse 16. 
we're told that Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And this, I think, should sort of hyperlink us forward to the time of the judges. That after the tribes are settled in the land, they've been there for a little bit, God raises up judges. And these judges save and help and help to govern and judge the people. Um, and they're a blessing to the people when they come. And you Bible trivia nerds might remember, who's the judge that comes from the tribe of Dan? Remember, he's got the long, long hair. He's a Nazarite. It's a Samson. Samson comes from the tribe of Dan. And, and the, the picture of a snake actually fits pretty well for Samson. We could, we could spend a lot of time on Samson, and we don't have it. I'd love to talk about Samson. But Samson, I think it's accurate to say that Samson was a serpent in the way, a viper by the path. He was a pretty crafty, clever warrior. He was given great strength by the Lord. And um, at one point, he's dealing in riddles. And another time, he's dealing with surprise attacks. He's got the craftiness of a serpent. And, and this is a blessing for Israel. I think of Samson as kind of like um, a weapon of mass destruction of the ancient world. You read the stories of Samson, it's like the Holy Spirit fills Samson and then he goes and like does battle and single-handedly wipes out, you know, hundreds of his enemies and of the enemies of the people of Israel. And we're told that Samson um, uh, governed over Israel for it's like 40 or 60 years. It's decades of peace because no one wants to mess with Samson because Dan is a serpent in the way. He bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. That's certainly what came to pass in and through Samson. I want us to notice verse 18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. This is kind of a, this is not the way he's doing the rest of his blessings, Jacob. He's speaking to his sons. He's telling them this is what's going to come to pass. And then right in the middle, well, not quite right in the middle, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Now, this is interesting. This is after the seventh name, after Dan. Um, the order of the names seems intentional here. We won't get into all of that, but they're not in birth order. After the seventh name, we have this cry, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And I think this is intentional. Here's what I think um, Jacob is doing here. Um, the two mountaintops of blessing here are Judah and Joseph. Judah and Joseph. They receive these sort of massive, long blessings. And uh, if we were to look forward into uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, you can go there with me if you want to. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we read this about Reuben. Remember Reuben? He was supposed to be the firstborn. He's supposed to be the mountain peak, but he's not. So who is? This is helpful commentary here. 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son, though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So there it's pretty clear. Who's, who ends up being preeminent? Well, it's Joseph and Judah close behind. Right? Jo Joseph is given preeminence by his father, 
He's given the primary blessing, but Judah too becomes great. These are these two great mountaintops. And I want you to notice the arrangement. We've got Judah early. We've got Joseph towards the end. And between them, if you were to count, there are six names, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali. And right in the middle is Jacob's prayer. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I think this is um, a Hebrew literary structure called a chiasm. I think right in the center of these blessings is Jacob's cry to God, save us. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And I think it's linked both to Joseph and to Jacob. Joseph, you'll remember, was their salvation in this present generation. When they were all starving up in Canaan, God had taken Joseph down to Egypt and had blessed him there and had put him in charge of all of Pharaoh's uh, bread factories, right? And so when they come down, they're able to eat, they're able to live. God saves the people through Joseph. And that's actually what Jacob talks about when he talks about Joseph. Verse 22. Notice mainly he's talking about the past here, not about the future. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The image here is it's plant, not animal, right? Joseph isn't an animal. He's this tree just deeply rooted by streams of water. I think Psalm 1 here. Verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, right? This describes Joseph's life to a T, right? At a number of occasions, right? He's betrayed by his brothers. He's betrayed by Potiphar's wife, and yet... And yet, verse 24, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Right? That, that Joseph, though he was embattled, was blessed of God and made a blessing to his family and to the world. Verse 25 by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So as Jacob prays, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The salvation you promised to Abraham, the salvation you promised to Adam and Eve, I'm waiting for it, I'm looking for it. He's saying, thank you, Lord, for my salvation in Joseph. But then he's also looking forward. He's looking forward to Judah. Before we talk about Judah, we need to talk about Benjamin. I haven't forgotten him. But Benjamin and Judah are related here. Two more animals to talk about, a wolf and a lion. Benjamin is the wolf. Judah is the lion. Both of these animals are predators. Both of these animals are dangerous. They're powerful. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? So both Judah and Benjamin are promised to become powerful. I think the fulfillment 
of these promises is mainly in the kings that God raises up from these tribes. These are the two tribes from which kings will come, right? A judge came from Dan. A king comes from Benjamin, Saul, the first king over Israel. And a whole line of kings comes from Judah. There is a comparison here. I mean, you put a wolf next to a lion, which one is more glorious? The lion, I think. The wolf has a, has a kind of power and a kind of strength, but the lion has a, has a grandeur which is unsurpassed. Saul is a dangerous king. God raises him up, and he's, he's effective in battle as long as he looks to the Lord. And then eventually he looks away, and the Lord removes the kingship from Saul's line. Benjamin only gets three lines. He'll be strong. He'll be dangerous in good ways, right? You need a king to be dangerous. If you, if you want an effective king, if you want an effective government, in some way they have to be dangerous if they're going to defend you against enemies. Saul was a wolf. He was able to do that for a time. But eventually he betrayed his God. From the line of Judah, a greater king was raised up. David. Of course, we're skimming over I mean, pages and pages of biblical history here, but we're trying to get the big picture. David is raised up. David becomes the lion from the tribe of Judah. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter is a sign of reign, of rule, Judah will have the scepter. Judah is the royal tribe. It's from Judah that David, King David, is going to be raised up. And it's to David, you'll remember, in 2 Samuel 7, that God promises a perpetual kingship. He says, I will keep a king on your throne, David. Your line will reign forever. This is 2 Samuel 7. And it's a similar kind of promise that's made to Judah here, isn't it? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will go on reigning, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's quite a promise. That Judah, the lion of Judah, is going to be so strong and raised to such royal prominence that actually all the peoples will obey him. So let's think. Does that happen in King David's reign? Well, he's mighty. A few of the nations around him are kind of scared of him. Do all the nations obey him? Not so much. Solomon, his son, kingdom expands more. Um, depending on how you, how you interpret the fourth line under, um, under verse 10, tr- until tribute comes to him, um, there's a word in there that might be Shiloh. It might be referring to Solomon. Commentators disagree here. But Solomon's kingdom becomes great, right? Do all the nations bow down to him? Queen of Sheba comes to him, right? But all the nations? No. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then from there, the kingdom is only in decline until it finally fizzles out into exile. The line of kings ends. And then we're left with the question. We've talked about this question before, right? This is the question of the latter prophets. What happens to God's promises? 
What happens to the promises for the perpetual kingship from the line of Judah? What, amen, what happens to these promises, right? And the, the prophets speak of one who is to come, right? The Messiah who will restore the throne of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah who will restore the glory of this kingdom. Luke 1, you know this verse. A promise given to a young woman, verse 31. A young woman named Mary, Luke 1, 30, 31. And behold, you will conceive in a womb, in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And this name is very important because of Jacob's prayer. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your Yeshua, O Lord. That's the word, salvation, Yeshua. I wait for your Yeshua, O Lord. And here to Mary, the angel Gabriel announces, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua. Salvation. Here is the salvation of the Lord. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob with the scepter of Judah forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is why we have to have the Old Testament to understand Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah come to save the world. He is the salvation of God. Some of this language about the, the power of these kings, right? Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Can be unsettling for us. I think many of us prefer to think of Jesus in more sentimental terms. Jesus is a comfort to us, and amen, he is. Jesus is, a, our, he is our peace, and amen, he is. But until we reckon with who Jesus is as the king, we have not understood Jesus. What did Jesus come announcing? when he proclaimed the gospel in the first days of his ministry. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king has come. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to obey the king. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission, right? After his crucifixion and resurrection, before he ascends to the Father, what does he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. It's as if he holds up his scepter and says, look, I am the king. And then what does he command them? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He says, teach the nations to obey 
This is Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus is a king. And he is a good king. He is a good king. We have a basic inbuilt defense mechanism about kings of all kinds because we live in a sinful world and because we live in nations which have never had perfect kings. We have some kings that are better than others, but we've never had a perfect one. Jesus is a perfect king. And he's not just perfect in his ability to rule in strength. He's perfect also in his kindness and his love. Notice the Messiah does not rise from Reuben, the one who sought to exalt himself. The Messiah does not arise from Simeon and Levi, who were tyrants. The Messiah comes from the line of Judah. Judah, who was willing, at the end of his life, actually to give his life for his brother Benjamin. What does Jesus say? If you would be great, you must become the servant of all. It's the prideful that he humbles, and it's the humbled that he exalts. So too with Jesus. Jesus the king, the king, who will reign forever and ever. Jesus the king, who one day every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That king came into the world and died for you. That king loves you so much that he gave his life for you. That king, that's the kind of king we have. A good king, you need to be both strong and kind. Strong to protect you and kind to protect you, to watch over you. Jesus is both strong and kind. And, and in his kingdom, he blesses his people. A tyrant rules and exercises power for his own benefit. A good king rules and exercises power for the benefit of his people. And the kingdom of Jesus will be a great and bountiful kingdom. Is a great and bountiful kingdom. Verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Um, as American evangelicals, we can sometimes have a hard time with the wine imagery of the Old Testament, but here it is. It's not a picture of cursing here. It's a picture of blessing. That in the kingdom of the lion of the tribe of Judah, there'll be so much wine that we're washing our clothes in it. So many grapes on the vine that you're not afraid to tie your donkey to it, even though he'll eat up half of it. 
got more. The picture is of overflowing abundance. And it's an image that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of the overflowing, superabundant goodness and blessing of the kingdom which the Messiah will bring in. And this is why Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana was to turn water into wine. This is the sign of messianic blessing for those who have eyes to see it. <coughs> and this is why, too, at the end of Jesus' ministry, as he's preparing his disciples for life without them, without him, he brings them to a table and he gives them bread and he gives them wine. And he blesses it. And he says, this is my body, which is for you, given in remembrance of me. And this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And what does he say about the cup? He says, I will not drink of it again until I drink anew with you in the kingdom of God. The imagery is so rich here. The point is, Jesus is the king, and he calls us to himself to turn from our sin and darkness and to instead entrust ourselves to him and to his good will, to follow him and to love him, to be saved in him and to obey him as our king because he is a good king. And as we follow him, he blesses us. And these blessings are manifold, first of all, in the cup, forgiveness of sins. This is what he promises. By faith in his broken body and shed blood, we are forgiven, guilt, gone, nailed to the cross. By faith in him, what else? Resurrection. Right? The promise of resurrection and eternal life. What else? He pours out his spirit on us. Right? God's not holding anything back. Right? We come to him and he says, here's myself. Right? I give you my very presence. Right? And he dwells with us and makes his home with us. And then promises to change us, that he doesn't leave us in the darkness. He's actually promised us the grace that his spirit's going to be in us and transforming us into a kind of person that we couldn't be on our own, but which we need to be more fully ourselves than we've ever been. Right? This is the blessing of the kingdom of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we'll see that blessing in full when the lion returns when he comes again, and that will be a wonderful day. So here's Jacob, looking back on the promises, looking forward to all that will unfold here on his deathbed, like straining to see what might happen through these boys, giving him, given a prophetic vision. Wow. All that God will do. Do you know the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Do you know the King? He's come. He has spoken. You have heard the announcement of his reign. Have you bowed the knee? Have you come to him? Have you run to him for salvation? And have you, have you welcomed him as your King? Joyfully bowing your knee, understanding to obey him is to receive blessings forevermore.
Let's pray. Father, there is nothing more important than that we would know Jesus. There is nothing more important than that we could know you. So we ask, Father, that you would never leave us or forsake us. We marvel at the blessings which you have poured out on us in Jesus. Help us never to grow unappreciative of this. to worship you. We praise you and we worship you, O Lion of Judah, Jesus, the Savior of the world. We thank you for your salvation, for your body and your blood given for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this time I'll have uh, Kevin and Dean come forward. Um, and what we're going to do at this, at this point is to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23 reminds us of Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper, saying this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we come to the table, we remember with bread and with a cup, what we have just heard with our ears. The promise that Christ's body was broken for us who believe, and that his blood was shed for us, and that we can actually know this with as much confidence as we can touch the bread, know that we're touching bread and drinking from the cup. At the Lord's table, we have all the promises of the gospel in edible form. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In coming to the table, we testify, I belong to Jesus. We testify, we belong to Jesus, and in doing that, we're also proclaiming that together, as we all belong to Jesus together, that we are one body as a church. And so it's a, it's a deeply resonant and meaningful and significant thing. And so the Apostle Paul encourages us that we ought to be careful when we come to the table that we really are in communion with Christ and with his body, the church. Paul warns us in these words, again, 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And so I'd encourage you to, to examine yourself. 
before you come to the table. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Are you in fellowship with his body, the church? If so, come. If the question on your mind is, well, I'm kind of a sinner, and maybe that disqualifies me from the, the table. I believe in Jesus, but I've got problems. Let me encourage you that this table is not for perfect people. If it were, no one could come. This table is for people who in their desperation run to Jesus, trusting in him alone as our Savior, crying out, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And so if that's you, come. Typically we have folks come up uh, this aisle, come up the west side of the building um, and circulate around the room. Uh, and when you come to the table, the elders will serve you the bread and the cup and you can feel free to do either of a couple of things. You can take a moment and eat and drink right up here if you want to, or take the bread in the cup and go back to your seat and, and eat and drink there. Um, we won't have a moment where we're all eating together, so eat and, and drink when you're ready. Um, and so as we come to the table, I want to give you last, one last invitation from the words of Jesus. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ.
just cut and profane the Lord's death until he comes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Christ Jesus, our Savior, died. He rose from the dead in glory. He ascended to the Father, where he sits and reigns as king, and he is coming again. Amen? Shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.